Our topic tonight uh, has two parts to it. Part one is called historicity and plausibility. As you just heard Dan say, as he began, today's conference description says, quote, because we believe that the Book of Moses includes authentic history, the possibility of evidence for that belief interests us as scholars. Close quote. In other words, the papers we'll hear this weekend have been prepared by scholars who believe in the general historicity of the Book of Moses, and their research has found evidence that supports that belief. I'd like to begin by offering some context and support for their approach. I see clear parallels between our current interest in the historicity of the Book of Moses and what happened some years ago with research about the Book of Mormon. During the unfortunate Mark Hoffman era of the mid-1980s, the church encountered an unusual barrage of criticism about Joseph Smith and the history of the Book of Mormon, the historicity of it, that is, whether the history described there actually happened. Elder Neil A. Maxwell, then on BYU's Board of Trustees, described this criticism as, quote, a new generation of fiery salvos, including a few duds and reused old darts, close quote. These issues prompted Elder Maxwell to galvanize the skilled and faithful scholars he knew at BYU to protect our flanks rather than just wave our arms. And instead of focusing primarily on such external evidence as archaeology, Elder Maxwell favored an approach that studied parallels between the ancient world and the Book of Mormon, especially as drawn from texts and historical facts discovered since 1829. This approach simply made sense to Elder Maxwell. He believed there was so much internal evidence supporting the Book of Mormon that, quote, the notion that it was concocted in the 19th century is just plain unscientific as a conclusion, close quote. He encouraged a research approach that began with gospel premises and with the mind and scholarly research tools still involved, rather than importing the secular vocabulary and viewpoint of non-Latter-day Saint biblical scholars into a church setting. This model looked for historical contextualizing, such as grounding the Book of Mormon in ancient history. Elder Maxwell believed that science would never be able conclusively to prove or disprove Holy Writ. So he saw these scholars' work as a source of defense, not offense, because their research could verify the plausibility of religious propositions, meaning not that the proposition necessarily did happen, but that it could have happened, enough to offset attacks that claim to be based on physical or logical evidence. Neutralizing those attacks, which C.S. Lewis once called using good philosophy to answer bad philosophy, doesn't claim to prove the gospel's truth. Rather, it has the more modest but crucial purpose of nourishing a climate where voluntary belief is free to take root and grow. Only when belief is not compelled by external evidence or otherwise can it produce the growth that is the promised fruit of faith. In Elder Maxwell's terms, faithful scholars could gather, quote, enough plausible evidence to prevent scoffers from having a field day, or letting them have slam dunks, but do so without removing the requirement of faith. That approach to defending the Book of Mormon's historicity is an apt model for defending the historicity of the Book of Moses, as this conference demonstrates. I'm grateful to our program participants because their impressive credentials, attitudes, and skills 
show that it's possible to gain the tools of a fine graduate level education and use those tools to research and analyze ancient texts, scriptures, and other resources just as Elder Maxwell had hoped, through the lens of sacred premises rather than primarily through secular premises. Evidence from ancient history will always be, almost always be, ambiguous, partly because specific, reliable ancient data are nearly impossible to find and identify with absolute certainty. And amid such uncertainty, a scholar's premises can significantly influence his or her findings and conclusions. But where do we look for research premises? A sacred map of reality can look at all knowledge through the gospel's lens, allowing us to integrate the secular map, which is smaller, into the bigger, broader sacred map and still include what the secular map shows. But the smaller secular map, with its more limited tools and framework, typically excludes religious insights. In Richard Bushman's phrase, modernism and skepticism discredit the idea of visions and revelations. For example, I still remember reading years ago what the brilliant but by then secularized University of Utah professor Sterling McMurrin said when an interviewer asked what he thought of the Book of Mormon, he said, you don't get books from angels. And his premise largely determined his conclusion of disbelief. Drawing on my own discipline of law, the varying standards of proof used in criminal and civil cases offer useful comparative tools when we want to understand how much evidence and what kind should be enough to prove or disprove an historical or other claim. In addition to the standard options of true and false, what does a jury or what do we do when after much effort the real answer is we can't tell for sure? That's when the legal standard, like a research premise about which side should receive the benefit of the doubt, will decide a case. Lawsuits deal constantly with that problem. In nearly all universities today, the default position, that is, where we place the benefit of the doubt, is with secular premises. If we don't have adequate, empirically verifiable evidence, we assume the secular default position, such as, you don't get books from angels. Here's another example. The current Wikipedia entry on Abraham tells us that until the 1970s, the leading biblical scholars and archaeologists believed that the Abrahamic patriarchs, quote, were either real individuals or believable composites of people who lived in the patriarchal age. Then other scholars challenged these views based on the relative lack of archaeological evidence and their own reading of ancient texts. So, Wikipedia goes on, by the beginning of the 21st century, archaeologists had given up hope of recovering any context that would make Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob credible historical figures." Close quote. Thus, an inadequate degree of verifiable empirical evidence can be taken to mean no historicity, when what it really means is that there is insufficient empirical evidence to prove historicity within the premises of the secular map. Well, people who seek graduate training today in such fields as ancient languages and biblical studies typically study at the feet of experts whose disciplines teach them to reason from secular premises and to bracket their personal faith in their scholarly discourse, partly as a matter of professional courtesy. And it's natural for these graduate students to learn to teach and write 
with an implicit personal detachment that can leave their students and those who read their work quite uncertain about their personal beliefs, an assumption that can serve important purposes in professional gatherings. However, when BYU faculty and students teach or otherwise share their work with other church members, as Elder Holland said recently, the approach of bracketing one's faith will, quote, cost scholars credibility with these readers or students because no one knows where they're coming from ideologically, close quote. Or as Elder Maxwell once put it, some Latter-day Saint scholars hold back by not appearing overly committed to the kingdom lest they incur the disapproval of professional peers, like those from their graduate school departments, who might disdain such consecration, close quote. The institutional academic freedom protected by BYU's explicit written religious mission consciously removes the brackets from around one's faith. It's like taking the mute out of a trumpet, and that unmuting allows the talented trumpets of BYU faculty and students to give an especially certain sound while integrating their faith with their academic disciplines. That's a liberating quality for the BYU community and for Latter-day Saints generally. The larger sacred map tells us that Abraham did exist. Indeed, modern scriptures tell us Abraham has already entered into his, ex his exaltation. And did Moses really exist? In 1836, Joseph and Oliver testified that Moses personally appeared to them in the Kirtland Temple, and he committed to them the keys for the gathering of Israel. That was a principal step in authorizing the restoration. For the historical Moses to have conferred such authority on Joseph Smith makes his revelatory visit a matter of great consequence to our faith. Well, the papers we'll hear at this conference will share plausible findings that support the historicity of the Book of Moses, and scoffers won't have slam dunks or a field day. Such findings do help. They help make the historicity of the Book of Moses, for one thing, more believable, rendering it at least reasonable to give the benefit of the doubt to sacred premises, even if, ultimately, the choice of premises is just that, a choice. The Lord deliberately leaves us free to make such choices. He doesn't create circumstances that compel our belief, even as he also invites us to be believing. For, as we read in John, as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that choose to believe on his name." Close quote. Why is that? It's because something happens to people who choose to receive him. They learn. They grow. Following his will changes them. Our uncoerced choices set in motion the process of becoming like him. One blessing of the Restoration is that Joseph received so much of his evidence and his authority firsthand from those like John the Baptist and Peter, James, and John. That's why the Lord could say of the Book of Mormon in the 20th section of the Doctrine and Covenants, the Book of Mormon is, quote, a record of a fallen people that contains the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, which was given to Joseph by inspiration and is confirmed to others by the ministering of angels, and is declared by them, proving to the world that the Holy Scriptures are true, and that God does inspire men and call them to his holy work. 
in this age and generation, as well as in generations of old, close quote. Those who say that the Book of Mormon is a valuable allegorical text, while also denying its divine and historical origins, as the Lord described them here, are missing the crucial point that through the visits of Moroni, Moses, and the others, God himself gave Joseph the authority and power to accomplish the holy work of the Restoration. Let's move now from the historicity of the Restoration and its founding scripture to part two of our presentation, Adam, Eve, the Book of Moses, and the Temple. It's really very fitting that we should begin this conference on the Book of Moses by talking about the Temple. Why? Because the Book of Moses is an ancient temple text, as well as the ideal scriptural context for a modern temple preparation course. In answering the question, why do we care about the Book of Moses, John Welch recently said to me, to me, it's all about the temple. Even though the Lord revealed this, this temple text to Joseph well before Joseph had any idea about building a temple, let alone what was to be done in the temple, Jack continued, yet much of the blueprint for the endowment is here, that is, in the book of Moses, and only here, close quote. For years, I have encouraged people who are preparing to receive their temple endowment to study the book of Moses. This book gives them unique and rich doctrinal perspective for understanding the temple endowment. The concept of heavenly ascent, the creation, fall, atonement, the purposes of mortality and its trials, ritual prayer, sacrifice, obedience, consecration, priesthood, revelation, building Zion, and preparing to meet God. As Jack Welch points out, the Book of Moses also teaches the difference between secular self-centered marriage and God-sanctioned interdependent child-rearing marriage. So in what follows, we will explore several of these concepts as taught by the Book of Moses and by the Temple. We'll do that through the great archetypal story of Adam and Eve, with a central focus on their relationship to the Atonement of Jesus Christ. In recent years, we Latter-day Saints have been talking, teaching, and writing much more about Christ's Atonement in testimonies, articles, books, and conversations, this is a most welcome and much-needed development. At times, however, some of our conversations seem to lack doctrinal clarity. For example, Jan Ships, a non-Latter-day Saint scholar who is among the most astute and sympathetic observers of the Church, Jan believes that what she calls our increasing LDS atonement discourse has failed to specify how Christ's atoning act is connected to the fullness of the gospel. Our discourse on the atonement, she says, especially fails to link the atonement to that part of the plan of salvation that includes progression toward Godhood, close quote. And just weeks ago, a very thoughtful church member asked me, is there more to drawing on the power of the atonement than faith in Christ, repentance, and baptism? Brothers and sisters, Christ's atonement indeed offers us great blessings in addition to forgiveness and the resurrection. And those blessings are key elements in the fullness of the gospel, the plan of salvation, and our progression toward the divine nature. 
Maria and I have felt a need for some time to identify some kind of existing doctrinal structure that would help us explain the source and meaning of those additional blessings of the atonement. As we've searched for structure of that kind, we've been, we've been led especially to the temple and to the book of Moses. Here's a picture of the St. George Temple. I grew up about four blocks from this temple. It's my sense of home in multiple ways. When we returned there in 2010 to serve for three years, the two of us came to feel that the doctrines and ordinances of the temple provide much of the doctrinal framework we'd been looking for for our questions about the atonement and its additional blessings. Years ago, a friend said to me, Christ is at the center of the temple. Christ is at the center of the gospel. So why doesn't the temple endowment teach the story of the life of Christ? What's all this about Adam and Eve, he said. At that time, neither of us could answer his question. But Marie and I now feel settled with this answer. The story of the life of Christ is the story of giving the atonement. And the story of Adam and Eve is the story of receiving the atonement. Their story is our story, too. We can look at them and say, that is the story of my life. And when we're in the temple, we can naturally think of ourselves as if we were Adam and Eve. With this picture of the temple as a background, let's put some headings on the screen as a framework for what will follow. Let's watch these headings. Priesthood, Principles, Adam and Eve receive the atonement, and the blessings of the atonement. St. George was the first temple dedicated after the Nauvoo Temple. It's actually the same size and shape as the Nauvoo Temple. Indeed, architectural historian Elwin Robinson told Marie and me once that St. George is Joseph's temple, even though Brigham Young planned and dedicated it. The deliberate design of this temple, like the first few that followed it, represents what we might call the original intent of the founders. That is, it's what the Lord gave Joseph for us. Baptism is the first saving ordinance, and the baptistry is always on the temple's lowest floor, symbolizing a new life, the beginning of ascending discipleship. In the early temples of this dispensation, as a patron moved from the baptistry to each succeeding ordinance, he or she stepped up, literally, to a higher level. Think of the Salt Lake Temple. Excuse me, think of the Salt Lake Temple, which has retained that design. With each move from the creation room to the garden room to the telestial room and eventually to the celestial room, we climb upward. So it is in all the temples where it's physically possible, even if only slightly. That upward climb symbolizes the pattern of ascending back to God's presence. President David O. McKay called the Temple Endowment, quote, the step-by-step -step ascent into the eternal presence, end of quote. And Joseph Smith said, quote, when you climb a ladder, you must begin at the bottom and ascend step by step. You begin with the first principles and go on until you learn all of the principles of exaltation, close quote. This upward pattern could plausibly derive from the book of Moses, which was given to Joseph 12 years before he administered the first endowments in Nauvoo. 
in a clear prologue to the Adam and Eve story, chapter 1 of the book of Moses begins with Moses in God's presence, where Moses learns that he's God's son and that God has a work for him to do. Knowing his identity and purpose, Moses then falls back to the earth, where he has to overcome Satan's power before beginning his upward journey of return, calling on God, hearing his voice, seeing his heavenly vision, and regaining his presence. That same cosmic pattern then repeats in Adam and Eve's story of creation, fall, overcoming opposition, redemption, and growing into a return to God. Then Enoch, Adam and Eve's descendant, experiences and extends the pattern, moving on to lead his entire city back to God's presence. Thus, the temple themes in the book of Moses extend beyond the story of Adam and Eve to their culmination in the story of Enoch. Moreover, Jeff Bradshaw and his colleagues have shown that the narrative and details of Moses 1, quote, place it squarely in the genre of ancient heavenly ascent literature that Joseph Smith couldn't have known about in 1830. End of quote. And where is Christ in these Book of Moses stories? He's right in the middle of them in every sense, as we will soon see. Because, as Richard Bushman wrote, quote, Christ enters the Book of, Mormon, Book of Moses discourse almost at once and remains present because Joseph Smith's Moses is a Christian, even in pre-Christian times, close quote. Terrell Givens describes the stunning implications of this insight. Quote, Positing Adamic foundations to the Christian gospel meant the collapse of all those polarities on which traditional Christian understanding was based, such as works and grace, catastrophic fall and reparative redemption. That is all now integrated into a seamless vision of a pre-mortally conceived plan delivered in the Garden of Eden and made new again in Joseph Smith's day." Close quote. Well, let's consider now how the book of Moses gives us the detailed story of Adam and Eve, the story of receiving Christ's atonement. And notice how this tracks the temple. We begin with baptism, the first temple ordinance in doing work for the dead. Sometime after leaving the garden, Adam asks God in Moses chapter 6, verse 53, why is it that men must be baptized? God replies, Behold, I have forgiven thee thy transgression in the Garden of Eden. The Son of God hath atoned for original guilt, wherein the sins of the parents cannot be answered upon the heads of the children, for they are whole from the foundation of the world." Close quote. These simple sentences introduce a doctrinally unique foundation for our understanding of why we need the atonement of Jesus Christ. With some variations among denominations, the entire Christian world had taught for centuries that because of Adam and Eve's fall, children are born with an evil nature. And that natural depravity is why mortals sin. So they've taught we need the grace of Christ mostly to overcome our inherited fallen nature. But here the Lord says to Adam, no, the Savior has already cleansed your children from that original sin. They are whole, W-H-O-L-E, from the foundation of the world. As Joseph Smith would later write in terms that will be familiar to most of you, we believe that men will be punished for their own sins and not for Adam's transgression. 
An echo in Doctrine and Covenants section 93 tells us that because Christ redeemed all infants from Adam's fall, they're born innocent. Another interesting word, like whole. Hence, no need for infant baptism. The Lord then tells Adam in Moses 6, 55 and 6, why his children would still need Christ's atonement. Language that revealed in 1830 a totally new understanding after centuries of misunderstanding both the fall and the atonement. Listen to what the Lord said to Adam. Inasmuch as thy children are conceived in sin, that is, born into a fallen world that is subject to death, sin, and temptation, the Lord continued, when they begin to grow up, sin conceiveth in, in their hearts, and they taste the bitter that they may know to prize the good, and it is given unto them to know good from evil." Close quote. So the bitterness we taste in life isn't because there's something wrong with us, or with God, or with life. Rather, we taste the bitter that we may know to prize the good. We came to earth to learn from experience, some of it bitter enough to require very demanding repentance. But Christ's atonement is not just for the purpose of erasing black marks. It's a developmental doctrine about our personal growth and learning. The atonement and repentance make that process possible by protecting us while we learn from our wise and unwise choices what love really is or why wickedness cannot produce happiness. Because of the atonement, we can learn from our experience without being condemned by it. Moreover, after the Lord's angel had taught Adam and Eve the purpose of their animal sacrifices, they taught their children the wondrous news of the redemption. Immediately, however, Moses chapter 5 tells us in a remarkable passage that, quote, Satan came among them, that is, Adam and Eve's children, and he commanded their children not to believe what their parents had taught. Continuing from Moses 5, and they believed it not, that is, Adam and Eve's children, and they loved Satan more than God. And men began from that time forth to be carnal, sensual, and devilish. Close quote. Those free choices by some of Adam and Eve's children then, not, not their parents' choice in the garden, the choices of those children created the first examples of what King Benjamin called the natural man who is an enemy to God. Thus, writes Terrell Givens, the book of Moses is a, quote, an audacious critique of the Bible with no Christian parallels. Adam and Eve's choice was designed, not tragic. It did not bring fallenness onto the race, but opportunity and progress with mortality conceived as an educative ascent from pre-mortality. These astounding doctrinal ideas were, Darrell continues, decisively outside any recognizably Christian cosmology or etiology, at least of the 19th century. Close quote. Imagine the irony then of arguing that Joseph Smith found these new ideas somewhere in his 19th century environment. While returning to the story of Adam and Eve, once they're forgiven, shouldn't they just go back to Eden? No. As we see in the progressive sequence of the temple endowment, they don't just return to the garden once they've learned about and even received forgiveness. Rather, they continue their journey of ascent from the fallen telestial world toward their ultimate exaltation. 
That's what the terrestrial and celestial rooms are all about. So the next ordinance is receiving the gift of the Holy Ghost, or confirmation. Again, that part of Adam's story is described only in the book of Moses. Chapter 6 tells us, Thus was he, Adam, baptized, and born of the Spirit, and quickened in the inner man. Adam, said the Lord, thou art baptized with fire and with the Holy Ghost. And then come these interesting words, Thou art after the order of the Son of God. This tells me that Adam next received the higher or Melchizedek priesthood. With these ordinances and that authority, Adam and Eve climbed the path of discipleship to receive forgiveness and the atonement's other blessing. What happens on that path? Well, after King Benjamin's people accepted the atonement by baptism, as Adam and Eve had, the king told them, quote, this is from chapter 5 in Mosiah, This day he hath spiritually begotten you. You have entered into a covenant to become the children of Christ. So they took his name upon themselves, entering into the relationship of becoming disciples of Jesus. Thus they did as we do, embracing the two-way covenants that are reaffirmed in the sacrament prayers. By accepting the bread and the water, we pledge our willingness to take upon ourselves his name, to always remember him and keep his commandments. And he covenants that his spirit may always be with us. To what end? As we keep climbing, learning, and growing, he bestows upon us three categories, broad categories of blessings, blessings of the atonement, redeeming blessings, strengthening blessings, and protecting blessings. These three kinds of blessings are all made possible by the atonement of Jesus Christ. Isaiah speaks of the redeeming blessings in terms that connect our repentance and our baptism to our relationship with Christ, the two-way relationship made possible by his atonement. The Lord says, this is Isaiah, I have redeemed thee, thou art mine. Second, again through Isaiah, the Savior describes what will follow from this mine-thine relationship. Quote, I will strengthen thee, I will help thee. What's he saying? We've become the children of Christ. Now we're following him along a straight, narrow path, the steep ascent, sometimes the rocky ridges. Every step of that way, he is the way. He will be with us to strengthen us. And then third, Moroni exhorts us to keep moving until we qualify to receive his perfecting blessings. Come unto Christ and be perfected in him. For if we deny ourselves of all ungodliness and love God with all our might, 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 mind, and strength, then is his grace sufficient that we may be perfect in Christ. The next time you're seeing all the verses of how firm a foundation, think about the Lord's promise to his followers about the atonement's strengthening and perfecting blessings. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace, all-sufficient, shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. Our covenant relationship with Christ, being born again as his covenant children, is the source of these redeeming, strengthening, and perfecting blessings of the atonement. Apart from this relationship, 
As President Russell M. Nelson has said, quote, there is no amorphous entity called the atonement upon which we may call for succor, healing, forgiveness, or power. Jesus Christ is the source, end of quote from President Nelson. He did say succor, healing, and power are indeed among the blessings made possible by Christ's atonement in addition to forgiveness, but Jesus Christ, not some amorphous, unrelated entity, is the source of these blessings. And his atonement is what qualifies him to enter into the relationship with us that produces these blessings. We grow toward maturity as his spirit children on the bedrock, bedrock of this covenant relationship. How firm a foundation. As his people climb this covenant path, King Benjamin urges them, quote, to be steadfast and immovable, always abounding in good works. And if they faithfully do that, they will eventually receive this supernal blessing. This is right at the end of Mosiah chapter 5. Benjamin tells his people about the end of that covenant path that, quote, Christ the Lord God omnipotent may seal you his, that ye may have everlasting salvation and eternal life, close quote. Beginning as the baptized children of Christ, then, Adam and Eve walked the mortal path with its sweat, thorns, and occasional bitterness, and he called to them, I will help thee, I will strengthen thee, thou art mine. With his help, they overcame Satan and all mortal opposition until one day he sealed them his. That's a temple word. Then they were truly at one with him, the perfected, full-grown men and women of Christ. Amulek shows us the inverse mirror image of this sacred idea. Moses, chapter 5, told us that when many of Adam and Eve's children chose to love Satan more than God, they became carnal, sensual, and devilish. What's the destiny of this natural man if he continues on that carnal path? Amulek said they become, quote, subjected to the spirit of the devil, and he doth seal you his, close quote. So those who are sealed to Christ become saints through his atonement, and they will know a life of eternal joy. But those who are sealed to Satan become devilish by nature, and they will know a life of eternal misery. So what do the book of Moses and other modern scriptures teach us is the nature of man. At birth, we're neither good nor evil, as we read in Moses chapter 5, but whole or innocent. Then we're free to choose whom and whose plan we will follow until we eventually acquire either a saintly or a devilish nature. Well, let's now apply this doctrinal context to the framework of the temple's ordinances and covenants. Let's list the ordinances in ascending order, from baptism and confirmation to the temple ordinances of initiatory, endowment, and sealing. We won't take time to discuss each ordinance here, except to note again that the temple teaches the story of Adam and Eve to show us how to receive the full blessings of Christ's atonement. As we look at that upward sequence, we also see Aaronic priesthood, then Melchizedek priesthood ordinances, for both men and women, the temple endowment makes clear 
the sequential progression from the Aaronic priesthood level to the Melchizedek priesthood level. Why does that matter? Because in the ordinances of the Melchizedek priesthood, meaning primarily the temple ordinances, the power of godliness is manifest, we read of the Doctrine and Covenants. And without those temple ordinances, that section goes on, the power of godliness is not manifest unto men in the flesh, for without this power no man or woman can see the face of God and live." Close quote. So, Aaronic to Melchizedek, from the lesser to the higher priesthood. You can see on the screen that at the lower or Aaronic level, the principles of faith and repentance are on the same level as baptism and Aaronic priesthood ordinance. Faith, repentance, and baptism are the first three principles and ordinances of the gospel, followed by, number four, confirmation and the gift of the Holy Ghost. Well, if these four are the first principles and ordinances, as Joseph Smith called them in the Articles of Faith, there must be more. Consider, for example, sacrifice and consecration, gospel principles that illustrate the higher or Melchizedek-level principles embedded in temple covenants. The screen shows these higher principles and covenants are on the same level as the higher ordinances of the temple, the initiatory ordinance, the endowment, and the sealing. Perhaps we could say that the principles of sacrifice and consecration are to the Melchizedek priesthood ordinances what the principles of faith and repentance are to the Aaronic priesthood ordinances. The higher perfecting principles ascend alongside the higher ordinances and covenants. And as we ascend upward from the first principles, we'll always stand on the permanent foundation of faith, repentance, and baptism. Faith will always be the first and foundational principle, constantly needed and never outgrown. Repentance is similarly essential as a crucial ongoing process. That said, we do learn in the Doctrine and Covenants about the differences between the two priesthoods. Among other things, the lesser or Aaronic priesthood holds the keys of the preparatory gospel, and the greater or Melchizedek priesthood holds the keys of all the spiritual blessings. So priesthood, principles, and ordinances are all connected in ways that reflect the temple's progressive ascent, suggested by the ascent of Moses in Moses chapter 1, and in the heavenly ascent literature of ancient times. In summary, as one friend said to me, while baptism focuses on the cleansing of the soul, the temple focuses on the development of the soul. As we've seen, Moses chapter 6 makes clear the atonement's developmental dimension. Thus, after repentance, baptism, and initial forgiveness, Adam and Eve continue climbing and learning from experience until someday, one day, they will enter as we will, what President McKay called the eternal presence, the presence of God. Would being in God's presence then be different from, what they, from when they were in His presence in the Garden of Eden? In T.S. Eliot's memorable line, we shall not cease from exploration, and the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time." Close quote. For Adam and Eve, the place where we started was in God's presence in the innocence of Eden, yet they were so inexperienced then they didn't know what it meant to be there. But finally, 
after tasting enough of the bitter that they could prize, that is, they could comprehend the sweet, they returned to him, and they were probably overwhelmed to discover what it meant to be with him. Now they knew the place, his presence, fully for the first time. Now let's look again at how Eve and Adam show us the temple's ascending development. In particular, what it means to receive Christ's atonement. This interactive receiving assists Eve and Adam step by step in becoming enough like Christ that they can stay with him. That same receiving of his atonement blesses us in the same way. Near the end of his life, Lehi chose of all the possible topics he could have chosen to teach his children about Adam and Eve receiving the blessings of the atonement of, the, of Christ in their mortal lives. If our first parents had remained in the Garden of Eden, Lehi said, they would have had no children. Instead, they would have remained in a state of innocence, having no joy, for they knew no misery. Oh, I get it. No children, no misery. <laughs> but the verse goes on, doing no good, for they knew no sin. And then the famous lines, Adam fell that men might be, and here we need to fill in a blank, right? That men might be mortal, and men are mortal, why? That they might have, through their experience in mortality, joy. Lehi illustrates here what the Lord had told Adam about his and Eve's children. They will taste the bitter, that they may know to prize the good. Lehi calls his version of this concept opposition in all things. Without misery and opposition, we have no comparison, no contrast, no standard. We would have no way to understand the difference between good and evil, and therefore, no way to choose between good and evil, between the bitter and the sweet, no way to choose to learn and grow from our experience. As we've noted earlier, in all of Christianity, the Restoration's developmental perspective is an entirely unique way of looking at sin, experience, and Christ's atonement. Our development in this sense helps us to change, become sanctified, prepared to comprehend being again in His presence. The Book of Moses tells us this story, what Eve and Adam are thinking and how they felt, how they are developing in ways we simply would not know otherwise. To illustrate this developmental perspective, I want to share a poem story about Eve by Arta Romney Balaf. Many of you will remember President Marion G. Romney. Arta Romney Balaf is his sister. She's trying to imagine what it was like for Eve after she and Adam had been driven out of the Garden of Eden. They were alone in a fallen world. There was no way Eve could call her mother and say, what do I do with Cain and Abel? These boys, they're driving me nuts. They're on their cell phones all the time. What was it like for her in her time with Adam in the, in the garden and after? Arta Balaf shows us what she imagined Eve thought and felt in the midst of one of her most wrenching experiences. Her poem has levels of symbolic meaning. Listen for those symbols. 
Eve trades the fruit of the garden for the fruit of her body. The storm, storms in Eve's life, storms in our lives. Seed, seed of the plants, seed of animals, our seed. As you listen for the symbols, listen for Eve's feelings. How do we know Eve's attitude at the end of the poem when she asks, why? Artabelov calls her poem, Lamentation. And God said, be fruitful and multiply. Multiply, multiply, echoes, multiply. God said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow. Thy sorrow, sorrow. I have gotten a man from the Lord. I have traded the fruit of the garden for the fruit of my body, for a laughing bundle of humanity. And now another one who looks like Adam. We shall call this one Abel. It's a lovely name, Abel. Cain, Abel, the world is yours. God set the sun in the heaven to light your days, to warm the flocks, to kernel the grain. He illuminated your nights with stars. He made the trees and the fruit thereof yielding seed. He made every living thing, the wheat, the sheep, the cattle, for your enjoyment. And behold, it is very good. Adam? Adam, where art thou? Where are the boys? The sky darkens with clouds. Adam? Is that you? Where is Abel? He's long caring for his flocks. Sky is black and the rain hammers. Are the ewes lambing in this storm? Why your troubled face, Adam? Are you ill? Why so pale, so agitated? The wind will pass, the lambs will birth with Abel's help. Dead? What is dead? Merciful God, hurry, bring warm water, I'll bathe his wounds, bring clean clothes, bring herbs, I'll heal him. I am trying to understand. You said Abel is dead. But I am skilled with herbs. Remember when he was seven, the fever? Remember how herbs will not heal dead. Cain. Where is Cain? Listen to that thunder. Cain, cursed? What has happened to him? God said, a fugitive? The vagabond? But how can God do that? They are my sons, too. I gave them birth in the valley of pain. Adam, Try to understand. In the valley of pain, I bore them. Fugitive? Vagabond? This is his home. This is the soil he loved, where he toiled for golden wheat, for tasseled corn. To the hill country? There are rocks in the hill country. Cain can't work in the hill country. The nights are cold, cold and lonely, and the wind gales. Quick, we must find him a basket of bread and his coat. I worry thinking of him wandering with no place to lay his head. Cain, cursed, 
a wanderer, a roamer, who will bake his bread and mend his coat. Abel, my son, dead. And Cain, my son, a fugitive. Two sons, Adam. We had two sons. Both, oh, Adam. Multiply. Sorrow. Dear God, why? Tell me again about the fruit. Why? Please, tell me again. Why? Someday, one day, I'm looking forward to meeting Eve. I want to thank her. Did you notice how Eve asked her question at the end of the poem? And could you tell with what attitude? Was she demanding? Heavenly Father, tell me, after all we've sacrificed, why are you doing this to me? I don't think so. It wasn't, why did she feel such anguish and agony about Cain and Abel in a bitter kind of way, but rather with more trust. Heavenly Father, why do we have all the terrible difficulties to work through in this world, in this life? And where could working through those difficulties lead us? What is, after all, the fruit of this life? As I think about the developmental asset we're all struggling in, I'm grateful for Elder Maxwell's honest insight, even if asked ironically, how can you and I really expect to glide naively through life as if to say, Lord, give me experience, but not grief, not sorrow, not pain, not opposition, not betrayal, and certainly not to be forsaken. Keep from me, Lord, all those experiences which made thee what thou art. Then let me come and dwell with thee and fully share thy joy. So, what does Christ's atonement have to do with what Eve describes in the poem? Again, the best answer, a ringing doctrinal answer, is in the book of Moses, in an angel's visit to an altar. Why, the angel asks, dost thou offer sacrifices unto the Lord? I know not, Adam replies, save the Lord commanded me. This is Walter Raine's painting. It's showing the angel teaching Adam and Eve at the altar. Again, the book of Moses paints a clearer picture. This thing is a similitude of the sacrifice of the only begotten of the Father. Wherefore, thou shalt repent, the opportunity for repentance and change and call upon God in the name of the Son forevermore. Look at that angel's face. What's his attitude? Is he scolding them? No, he wants them to understand. He wants them to want to do the hard things they will have to do to ascend. He wants them to ascend, to get their feet out of the mud and themselves into the fiery light of heaven. He loves them.
Look at Adam's and Eve's faces. It's not fear you see there. They're leaning forward, desiring to understand. Look at the diagonal division in the painting. The lower right is reality, the mud of mortality. The left and upward is the glory of God, which can only be reached by stretching up and out and through the difficulties created by that symbolic mud. And notice Eve's hand. It's on Adam's shoulder, as if she's saying, what we're going to do, we're going to do together. The angel teaches them not only about Christ's sacrifice, but also about the great plan of redemption and salvation. Eve's reaction to the angel's teachings? Eve and Adam were not novices, not greenies in Eden. They'd been on the earth for some time. They'd had children and many hard experiences. And even, no, she's no Pollyanna. Yet, Moses chapter 5 tells us that she heard all these things and was glad, saying, were it not for our transgression, we should never should have we never should have had seed, their seed again, and never should have known good and evil and the joy of our redemption. She's saying, if we hadn't chosen and known the bitter, we wouldn't, we couldn't prize the good. They would not have had joy. Eve is getting it. Remember, no experience, no children, no misery, no sin, and therefore no joy. So she says that without the anguish, without the difficulties, the hard things, they wouldn't, have, they wouldn't know the joy of our redemption and the eternal life which God giveth unto all the obedient. Notice that word, obedient. I love how she doesn't say unto all the perfect. That gives me hope. But she says, but unto, she, gets, she says, unto all the obedient, those who are striving. In this story, the book of Moses again makes clear the unique doctrine that Christ and his atoning mission were central to Adam and Eve from their earliest days, and that mortal afflictions are designed not to punish us, but to teach us a catalyst to growth. Now we can see more words to add to the screen. Adam and Eve are stepping up, as in the temple's pattern, to the terrestrial world and moving toward the celestial. And as part of that upward ascent, that stepping up, we can also see the additional blessings of the atonement. The Savior is so ready to give us what is good for us when we become ready and when we're willing to reach up. As we think of the redeeming blessings, the strengthening blessings, and the perfecting blessings, Notice how the perfecting blessings relate to the endowment and to the higher priesthood with sacrifice and with consecration. The angel's visit strengthened Adam and Eve. And I believe the Savior is strengthening us while we're being redeemed and while we're trying to become perfected. If Adam and Eve could grow through their extreme difficulties, maybe I can. The book of Moses teaches this doctrine. I can climb up and out of any anguish if I stick with him. 
I believe if my faith is based on trust in God and not on, and not on blessings he might give me, I can grow through any trial. It is a doctrine of hope. Let me add now just two brief thoughts about Adam and Eve's marriage and the doctrines of sealing and sacrifice, which culminate the story of receiving the atonement. We noted earlier that the Book of Moses shows the contrast between other-centered and self-centered marriage. More on that shortly. We've also seen that Eve and then Adam chose wisely in the garden because only the natural moral consequences of eating the fruit could provide the experience, including the children, needed to fulfill God's plan for them and for us. In contrast, traditional Christianity teaches that Eve's choice was a terrible mistake, bringing down the wrath of God on all mankind. Some Christian churches still teach that because women are the daughters of foolish Eve, wives should be dependent on their husbands. Reacting strongly against this idea, most people today would say that a wife should be independent of her husband. And, in fairness, they would add, a husband should also be independent of his wife. But when both, spou both spouses are independent of each other, they usually accept today's non-binding commitments, which makes them both more likely to leave their marriage when the fun stops or when the trouble starts. Which is correct in a marriage, dependence or independence? Neither one. Resting on the doctrinal foundation provided by the Book of Moses, the restored gospel, unlike the rest of Christianity, teaches that Adam and Eve's choice in the garden wasn't a mistake or an accident. Rather, their action was a deliberate, even glorious part of the plan of salvation. And so the restoration sees Eve and all women as noble beings who are the complete equals of men. Eve isn't dependent on Adam, nor is she independent from him. Rather, Eve and Adam are interdependent with each other. As the church's proclamation on the family states, they are equal partners who help each other in everything they do. That concept was also not likely to have been present in Joseph Smith's 1830 New England culture. The Adam and Eve story also teaches us about sacrifice, both in general and as a sanctifying dimension of marriage. During our time in the St. George Temple, I was asked to perform a sealing in the same sealing room where Marie and I had been married about half a century earlier. As I invited the young couple to come to the altar, suddenly I realized something I hadn't caught before. I would be asking them to kneel, like Adam and Eve, at the sacred altar of prayer, the altar of covenant, the altar of sacrifice. And what would they be doing there? I found myself telling them that when the Savior spoke to the Nephites after he had completed his atoning mission, he said he no longer wanted animal sacrifices. He wanted instead the new sacrifice of a broken heart and a contrite spirit. Animal sacrifice was symbolic of the father offering his son, but having a broken heart and a contrite spirit is a symbol of the Savior offering himself as a sacrifice for us. James E. Talmadge taught that Jesus literally died of a broken heart. When we make that kind of sacrifice, offering ourselves, we seek to emulate him 
So that couple were meekly offering themselves on the altar to God and to each other, holding nothing back like Adam and Eve. And what will happen to them as they try to live for each other and for their family in a way that emulates Christ? This thing is in similitude of the only begotten, the angel told Adam and Eve. As they try individually to live as he did, they offer themselves to God vertically, and they offer themselves to each other horizontally. As Adam said, this is from the book of Moses, this is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and he shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And Eve, his wife, did labor with him, equal partners. Think of a triangle with the bride and groom in the two bottom corners and the Lord at the apex above them. As the couple, like Adam and Eve, husband and wife, individually ascend toward him on either side of the triangle, the closer they come to the Lord, the closer they will come to each other. And eventually, they come to the point of being at one with him and also at one with each other. As their sealing is sanctified in this way, they are personally sanctified as the Savior's perfecting grace blesses their lifetime of placing their hearts on the altar of selfless love. This covenantal, sacrifice-based understanding of marriage differs starkly and powerfully from the prevailing cultural view of marriage today. In his parable of the Good Shepherd, Jesus described a hireling, someone who is paid to care for the sheep. When the wolf comes, the Savior said, the hireling leaveth the sheep and fleeth. Why does the hireling run away? Because, Christ said, his own, the sheep, are not. By contrast, he said of himself, I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. In today's culture, too many marriage partners view themselves like hirelings who too often flee when the wolf of trouble comes. They're like Adam and Eve's misguided descendants who, we read in the book of Moses, hearkened not to the words of Noah, and every man was lifted up in the imagination of his own heart, close quote. But we, in similitude, try to give our lives for the sheep of our marriage covenant an hour a day at a time. It's the story of Adam and Eve, and it's our story. I know that the Good Shepherd lives and that our personal relationship with him leads to a joining of his sacrifice and ours. Within and through that relationship, he redeems us, he strengthens us, and he perfects us. Finally, when I was assigned to meet in the St. George Temple with people ready to receive their own endowment, I would tell them that they were about to have an experience similar to what Moses did as described in Moses chapter 1. And I'd say that what the, what the Lord said to Moses, he would be saying to them during the endowment. Moses, and I would say to them, imagine the Lord saying your name, thou art my son, or thou art my daughter, and I have a work for thee to do. I am so thankful for the book of Moses. Because through the temple, it teaches us the divine vision of who we really are. And it teaches us the work 
that will return us to his presence. I so testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, you have given us a rich banquet of reflections on the temple and the book of Moses and a really marvelous introduction to this conference. We're grateful for that. So thank you very much. I have some questions here, some of my own and some that have come in. Uh, one is uh, this. How does the book of Moses address the criticism that Joseph Smith's theology evolved, especially regarding the temple? How does the book of Moses address the criticism that his theology evolved? Well, we believe in continuing revelation. Of course it would evolve. He was given, as we've already said, he was given what Jack Welch called the blueprint for the temple endowment in 1830. And then over time, he, the saints, history, we were ready to receive the, the temple endowment. We didn't even receive the full endowment in Kirtland, beautiful as the temple was, historic as it was with the visit of Moses and all the others. It wasn't time until the saints were in Nauvoo. So was Joseph's doctrine, was his understanding evolving? Beautiful, yes. Thanks. Okay. Yeah, and then we didn't even have it all until St. George because you didn't have... Thank you for putting, this was once the matron of the St. George Temple. What do you mean, Sister Haven? Well, but we didn't have some of the work for the dead, a lot of the work for the dead. We didn't have the endowment for the dead. We didn't have sealing for the dead. So it wasn't complete. Yeah, that's, that's a wonderful point, really. And we didn't know that ourselves until we were in the St. George Temple. Uh, the first endowments for the dead took place in 1877, when the St. George Temple was dedicated. And all that followed in that wonderful story with the founding fathers coming, finally you're doing endowments for the dead, but you haven't done ours. Well, it was all part of the evolving understanding. We needed, why didn't the saints do that in Nauvoo? They barely got out of town in time before it all burned down. Yeah, it was evolving. But the blueprint was there yeah. for the... The blueprint, Basic. the foundation. But Brigham Young asked President Woodruff, your predecessor there, to, uh, to systematize and organize. Uh, this was really our first chance, I think, to, to have a peaceful place where we could think of what we were doing in a temple. Nice way to put it, Dan. I mean, the Salt Lake Temple, the ground was broken within just a few years of when the saints entered the Salt Lake Valley in 1847. And... And it took 40 years to build that temple. And with all of the trouble where they once had to, maybe more than once, but cover it up, run for the hills. Uh, they didn't know what was happening. They didn't know when the day would ever come. And so Brigham Young went to St. George in 1877 because he was still alive. Well, he went in 18... Excuse me, he went to 1874, announced that that temple would come. And... And then the temple was dedicated in 1877, in January, and then again in April, and Brigham Young died just a few months later. So well, that temple was built in six years, didn't yeah, he come in 1870? And, and talk about peaceful conditions. Peace, 
and poverty. They often go together in a strange way. But Brigham Young uh, asked Wilford Woodruff and others who were there to write down the temple ordinances for the first time. They had kept them sacred, confidential. That was under Brigham Young's direction. And then he dedicated the, the ground for the Manti Temple and the Nauvoo Temple sort of within the few months the after that. What did I say? Yeah, I'm getting ahead of myself. Uh, Manti, and then Logan, and then he died. One week after the Founding Fathers came. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't. You know, if I could just add something myself. Uh, years ago, I was on the Gospel Doctrine Writing Committee, and I was asked to do the lesson about the chapter about Brigham Young. And I decided that I was tired of reading about Brigham Young, the great pioneer leader. We knew that. I wanted to show Brigham Young, the religious leader devoted to temples. And I, one quote sticks in my mind where he said he sometimes he wanted the tongues of seven thunders to wake up the people. He said, if you understood how important this work is, this house, speaking about the St. George Temple, would be open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. You know, it would never close. There's so much work to be done. That quote that you just offered so accurately was from his talk at the dedication of the St. George Temple. So he was committed to that. He wasn't, he wasn't only the practical man of action, irrigation canals and colonizing. It was all in the service of the work of the Lord and temples particularly. You know, tying that back to something you said earlier, Dan, uh, about Joseph and evolving, you Nibley once said, Brigham Young was Joseph Smith's most faithful disciple. You remember we said the temple uh, architecture historian, Delvin Robinson, who has done a lot of wonderful work for the church, but he lives in Ohio. He told us the St. George Temple was Joseph's temple. The relationship between Joseph and Brigham was so clear in the temple work. And my, my own personal little theory about why Brigham Young was in such a hurry to get that temple built in St. George is that he sensed he didn't have much longer, and he wasn't about to face his mentor, Joseph, and say, sorry, we had too many problems. So no, we'll just go to poor, peaceful St. George and get it done. That's, that's a great point. Um, here's another question that came in. Should we take the archetypal story of Adam and Eve as an allegory based on a prospective series of Adam and Eves in our universe? That's fairly speculative, I think. Okay, based on, read the last this part. This is based, based on a prospective series of Adam and Eves in our universe. Yeah, I don't, I don't know much about other Adams and Eves in our universe. So I guess I'd say, what's the next question? Well, I'd, I'll go on because, the, because there's even another part to this one which I didn't understand. Or is he saying if Adam and Eve lived, then do, are we all like Adam and Eve? Or did they do it because there yeah, would be a lot I of Adam and Eve? Exactly. Uh, yeah. Are there Adam and Eves? Adams and Eves in other worlds, I suppose there might be something like that. This question goes on to say, they might seem to merge to the point where we can actually tell, is this right? I'm not sure I know what that means. I thought maybe you... Well, maybe, maybe what that means, just giving the questioner the benefit of the doubt. For Sometimes speculative questions come from a good place. Yeah. Maybe when we say archetypal pattern, we mean something so fundamental that it's universal. And if the Adam and Eve story is so archetypal that it's universal, then maybe that's what he's talking about, and it, and it could well be true. Yeah. 
think in, uh, in Persian, for example, they use the word Adam, Adam, to refer to just any person, a person. Um, because Adam is everybody, every man. Um, I think that's really striking in a, a non-Christian, non-Jewish culture, but they still do it. Um, now, here's some thoughts that occurred to me, and uh, some are thoughts, some are questions. One is, on the whole, my sense is we're not. Are we doing an adequate job of preparing young people and others to go to the temple for the first time? And how might we improve as individuals, in our families, in the church? Wonderful question, Dan, and it's on the minds of the First Presidency, the Twelve. We've heard it talked about in conference, and they're serious about that. Uh, we don't have those temples popping up all over the world, j just hoping someday somebody might see one. They're there on purpose, and so preparing our young people everywhere. I think of the places, you know, where the church is so new. And they've got temples. We had a granddaughter just come back from Cambodia on a mission. Cambodia, I hardly knew the Vietnam War was over. And she went to Cambodia, and there's a temple coming to Cambodia. So the Lord is hastening his work, and that must mean hastening the process of teaching our young people. So I guess I would say, what are we going to do about that? Well, how about starting with the Book of Moses? Because the, the, the doctrinal foundation... You know, it's one thing to talk about the kind of nuts and bolts of going to the temple, and there are lots of them, and we need to understand them. It, people are apprehensive. There's a lot they, that isn't clear to them. But I sense the brethren telling us, if we're careful, we follow the guidance the brethren give us on the church website, we can say more, we can teach more, we can talk more, so that when people go, they are ready. So anything in print, but I think maybe you have to go back to the real base where you say a mother teaches her children to pray, a mother talks with her children around the dinner table, a father is there, and they discuss what the temple means to them, what did they learn from going to the temple, so that step by step as they're ready, as it's appropriate, age appropriate, then they learn what are the next steps so that they can be ready with their heart and also with their mind to understand what they will be presented with in the temple. I think the church is being much more open nowadays, showing photographs of temple clothing and so on. And there's so much in print. Yeah. If it's in print, we could talk about right. it. Right, right. Um, now, I heard an objection just the other day. Someone told me of a, of a person who'd gone to the temple and was, was turned off because one of the characters representing people in the, in, the, uh, in the temple had buttons, and buttons didn't exist in the days of Adam and Eve. And, and I thought, oh my, did someone miss the point? <laughs> Maybe we can well, help out a little there, here. There again, you know, there's, uh, we don't know our own history very well. One, one of the delightful discoveries we made being in the St. George Temple was the history of how they decided what they would wear. <laughs> because um, Marie and I love the story of, uh, of Wilford Woodruff. And, uh, when he first came, he yeah, didn't wear white. He, he was the president, but he, they were just figuring this out. And... One day he showed up in white clothing, and he said uh, to the woman who was the matron of the temple, not his wife, I think she was one of Brigham Young's wives, they both clothed in white. And then the ordinance workers began wearing white. And the, there were so many other things that happened like that. It was line upon line, precept upon precept. And uh, knowing that history, may I, can I put in a plug for one other, one other uh, 
point, Dan, and that is the value of the new history of the church, saints. It is so candid, so open. It's stories. It's what we've been doing here tonight. We want, we want each other in the church to know these stories, the doctrinal ones about the temple, uh, about the issues that people said they didn't know enough about earlier. And there might have been a time earlier when, this, when it was better to kind of let people wait until they were ready. But we live in a culture that isn't waiting until anybody's ready for anything. You know, it's all sort of in your face, ready or not, here we come. And I think we're starting to do that more in the church. And that history is a good example of it. Can I make one more comment? Yeah. I was just thinking uh, that in the instructions that I was privileged to give with uh, young women who were coming, mostly young, who were coming for the first time, either as missionaries or to be married, that if they understood what a symbol is, then they understood they had a big step up toward understanding the temple. Because the Lord will take whoever comes to the temple where he or she is, and then he will teach them based on their desire, based on their living, based on their understanding, the next step that they need to, to have. And he teaches them in a way that it's not obvious on the surface. But if you look for the symbols and understand the symbols, then you're going to understand the temple better and better. I can say some of my best moments in the church, but specifically in the temple, have been where suddenly a light bulb goes on and I get something. I, I see what it means, at least I think I do, and it, yeah. and it, oh my word, I, I, there's light on this in now. In a new and, way. Yeah, yeah, and I've, I've made a step, I think, and uh, those are tremendous moments. Um, oh, I, you know, this is sort of related to it. I'm intrigued by the idea of the Book of Moses' uh, temple text, um, and sometimes it seems to me the temple is kind of out there in normal church experience before you've gone to the temple. You've been to sacrament meetings. The temple's nothing like a sacrament meeting in a lot of ways. And, uh, and we say, well, we don't have all this symbolic stuff and so on. And then people go to the temple, and, and we do. And there's kind of a disconnect. And I, I think talking about the Book of Moses as a temple text maybe suggests one way that we might integrate the temple with, with our, our more common everyday outside of the temple experiences, Latter-day Saints. Well, I was just, can I comment yeah. just, just a little bit? I, because the Book of Moses maybe gets closer to the temple being a poem than our regular everyday speech. And if you look at the poem, excuse me, look at the temple as a poem rather than as just a narrative, then that also helps you to understand it's going to be different from our normal everyday life. I would just add that we're, we've been getting a little taste recently in the church of what sacrament meeting is really all about. I once would say to young people coming to the temple for their own endowment, I was trying to help them understand that actually ordinances are central to what we do outside the temple as well as inside. I, was, I would say occasionally, what if you would go to sacrament meeting and the only thing you did was walk in, sit down, and somebody brings you the sacrament, and then you go home, you're done. Well, that's kind of what the temple is. You're, it's receiving an ordinance, and I don't know, why don't we think of the sacrament in those terms? Maybe we can understand it better since that's what we're doing now. I think sometimes we've seen the sacrament as something you get out of the way so you can get to the real heart of the yeah, meeting, yeah. which is the talks, whereas actually the talks are dispensable. Even if they're good, they're dispensable. The sacrament is not. Again, it's condensed like a yeah. poem, and it has unfolding meanings as you bring more to it. Yeah.
Oh. I remember baptizing one of my sons and it suddenly hit me how, how simple the ordinance of baptism is. It only takes a few seconds. It's a very simple thing. You dip someone in water, say a few words, dip him in water, bring him out. That's baptism. And yet it's so profoundly symbolically rich and, and obviously so eternally important. Um, but we can skip it by. And I remember when I was a bishop once, there was a person who came to me and he was thinking of not getting married in the temple. He was worthy in every way. I couldn't understand why I asked him. And he said, well, because I don't want all the expense and all that sort of thing, the reception. And I said, look, you've got this all mixed up. The reception, maybe you should have one, maybe you shouldn't, but it's not necessary. The temple is very simple. You don't have to shell out a lot of money. If you just want to go there with your fiance and get married, you can do that. Don't drop the temple, drop the reception if you're going to let one go or the other. But elope. Yeah. <laughs> I, I didn't think I was really supposed to counsel someone to elope, but I said, if it's going to be a choice of temple or not, you might choose that, elope to the temple. Um, There's actually a similar problem, Dan, with, uh, with those going on missions. Uh, it's been, it was interesting to me to hear the, the members of the First Presidency in 12 talk about this uh, more than once. They, would, they wanted temple presidents and, and they wanted priesthood leaders, families, to understand that when people receive a mission call and they can now go to the temple, that's not just to check the first box on the way to the MTC. It, it has an independent, significant meaning that we've been talking about all evening. And uh, to be able to go to the temple, and, and you know, for itself, all that meaning, and so to have missions kind of disrupted, even going to the temple is disrupted, it's going to help us think in fresh ways about both of those I things. I think it now is in COVID, where yeah. our grandson went on his mission without having been to the temple. He just had to wait until there was an opportunity. Right. Now this is, I think, helping us to boil things down to the essence. And that can be very good sometimes. A lot of things can grow up around the essence and we begin to confuse them with the core. So. Well now, can I ask you a question, Dan? <laughs> I don't know if we allow that. This is a question about this, the Book of Moses conference. Getting ready for this conference has been really intriguing for both of us. Uh, and you've heard us say some things tonight that some people might think are kind of outrageous. The, rest, the restored gospel of Jesus Christ teaches an understanding about the fall, the atonement, the meaning of life, all of those fundamental essences about the mortal experience that the rest of Christianity doesn't know about. You know, I don't condemn them. I don't, they don't know. But uh, I, are we trying to keep this a secret in the church? <laughs> because I find that a lot of our people don't quite get that. They don't recognize how unique our doctrine is. We've talked tonight about the developmental doctrine. It's the temple traces that. And the scriptures teach it, especially in the book of Moses. So I guess I'd, I say, hooray for this conference, because it will give some visibility to, uh, to the uniqueness of our theology. You know, this, there's something far more at stake here than is, this, is, is there historicity behind this? Oh, for heaven's sake, there's so much more than that question, because when, when, uh, this was all in Joseph Smith's neighborhood. Are you kidding? Uh, it, it, it's, uh, and we talked that way. I think as time went on in our preparation, we talked that way on purpose. And we do salute you for having the conference and believe that 
that I'm trying to get the word out about the temple. Let's get it out about the theology that's in the book of Moses. I don't think that we fully appreciate, most of us, uh, probably any of us fully appreciate how rich and radical in the good sense the, the doctrine is. This came home to me once in a way. Uh, I'm supposed to be asking you questions when I'm telling stories. but That's good. But, uh, You're just answering our question. <laughs> but I remember years ago, I was in a conference with Muslims, Christians, and Jews in Austria. It was in Graz, Graz Austria, you know. Yeah. And, um, and I ended up spending a little extra time there. I had to get back to, a con to my wife and children were already in Jerusalem. I was going to teach there but I couldn't catch my flight right away. So I was there with a rabbi who taught at a university back east, and we were talking about, uh, about the church a little bit. He wanted to know about it. And I said, well, one of the issues it was facing was rapid growth in many areas and having to staff new units. And he said, he said growth? He said, I, I don't mean to insult you, but I've always thought of, of Mormonism, he said, as the sort of quintessential boring Midwestern Protestantism. And I said, boy, you really don't know anything about <laughs> us at all. But it was clear he thought of us as just basically evangelicals or fundamentalists with an extra book, maybe an extra wife, I don't know. But, but, but he didn't, and I, and I thought, sometimes I just want to scream, no, we're much weirder than you think we are. We are really different. Yeah. And our theology is radically different in a really good way. Yeah, we have all the rungs in the ladder. Yeah, yeah. We're not just another form of Protestantism. It's, it's very different than that. Of course, some of our critics know that, but they don't appreciate it, but, but others don't know it at all. Um, well, I don't want to keep this going too long, but there, there are questions and issues that, uh, that maybe you'd have something to say. There seems to be a rising tendency among some members of the church um, to say, well, the historicity of the Book of Mormon, the Book of Moses doesn't really matter. Or if some even say, they just aren't historical, and what difference does that make? It's, it's always been the position of people outside the church, and it's probably been the position of people who were leaving the church, you know, fading out of membership. But I hear it more often nowadays occasionally among people who are still in. I'm thoroughly active. I just, I think the Book of Mormon, Joseph Smith made it up. And what, how do you react to that? You know, we're... we're we're kind of that same way about our culture. You know, the cancel culture would like to just do away with historicity in general. Uh, if, you don't, if you don't like something, cancel it. If you don't understand something, cancel it. We don't know who we are without our history. So to say that, these, that in our country, as well as in, in the scriptural senses, there's no historicity, it's to... Uh, we kind of alluded to that earlier that you know you don't you don't grasp really the restoration uh, and 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 it, it is just Protestantism with another book if that's really all it is and so uh, hooray again for this conference because that will help people think about it well I I think you raised one really strong objection to this uh, Moses appeared to Joseph Smith um, I always want to ask if the Book of Mormon is not historical, then who was that that appeared in his bedroom and told him where the plates were? What's going on here? Who are these persons who keep showing up who you say weren't historic? Um, and there are so many of them. That's another reason for, for let's read, you know, saints. Yeah. Because you, there are so many people who came to them. The restoration was such a huge process. And once you see the size of it, then, you know, the... 
these questions, uh, you know, about the historicity of something specific, they sort of fade into relative insignificance. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I just think, you know, it's one thing to bracket the historicity of the ancient scriptures that we have, but that also makes a hash of the Restoration. Because you've got Peter, James, and John, but you've got Moroni, you've got, you've got Moses, you've got all of these figures who are coming. Peter, James, and John. Yeah, yeah. and uh, so the ancient history matters, and it matters in the 19th century and into the 21st, too. It, you and can't we may just... not understand all of it again. No. Peter's relationship to the temple, for example. Why? Right. Yeah. Why Peter? Yeah. Um, don't know, but that's a really interesting thing. Well, uh, there are a couple of things that, that you said that I just really loved. I've loved your quotation from Elder Maxwell. How can we expect to receive everything the Lord has if we say, well, I want experience, yes, but none of the unpleasant things. None of the hard things. <laughs> yeah. The stuff that, that you had to go through. I don't want that, but I, then I want to be rewarded. I remember one day when I was becoming active in the church as a teenager, I grew up in a part member family and uh, my mother wasn't overly active, but I, I was suddenly just oppressed by the thought that Abraham may have already entered into his exaltation, but I'm nowhere near Abraham. How can I even think of, you know, of reaching that sort of status? What would I have to do to get there? And, but somehow we're assured that we can follow that path. But then we have to be willing, I guess, to take what the Lord gives us too. And may or may not be the trials or yeah. tests of Abraham. But yeah, Mo yeah but Mosiah the, 3 and 19. But the pattern is the same. And that's, I think, what we're talking about. That's why I'm so grateful for the book of Moses for the blueprint. and the temple. The yeah. blueprint, it's the pattern. Sure, there are all these variations, but that pattern fits all times, places, seasons. Uh, it's just remarkable, and, and it's, it's wonder, really it is. I love the image too, if I can quote it and emphasize it, because I would love to have had it as a bishop when I was sending young couples to the temple. I like this one. Think of a triangle with the bride and groom in the two bottom corners, kneeling at the altar, and the Lord in the apex, at the apex above them, as they individually ascend toward him on either side of the triangle. The closer they come to the Lord, the closer they will come to each other. And eventually, when they come to the point of being at one with him, they will also be at one with each other. I thought that was a marvelously profound uh, a statement. Yeah, there are some little hints there about the blessings of the at one meant. Yes. Yeah. I, you know, one other thing. Uh, I'm entering into this much more than I intended to. I was just meaning to pepper you with questions. Uh, but... Uh, um, I'm glad you are. <laughs> Well, uh, I, I like the comments you made about trying to see more clearly the, the link between LDS atonement discourse and the plan of salvation, especially progression toward the divine nature. Uh, it seems to me, I actually made an argument something like this in a, in a piece for the Feshra for Jack Welch a few years ago, that, that the full atonement, the full at-one-ment with God actually already entails partaking of the divine nature. If you're fully at one with God, you're there. That's what it is. And, uh, and you're at one with everyone else who is at one with God. So. But knowing it is a developmental process changes the way you look at everything about it. And that it's in the temple, it's in the book of Moses. So when you make that paradigm shift, oh, it's developmental. It's not just a kind of one and done thing, you know, overnight. It's the, the 
the comparison with the typical doctrines of other uh, Christian faiths, where you know you, uh, I don't, I don't, they're doing the best they can, uh, knowing that it's developmental changes everything. But that's what gives you hope as well, because you but, think, well, I can do that a step at a time. And I guess I would, maybe you're, are we, are we lurching to a close here, Dan? There's an image that, <laughs> that it occurs to me. Uh, <laughs> One of the things I like about developmental is that we know where this ends up. Mm. You go to the temple, we know where that ends up. There's a message there for us. This process, this pattern in the book of Moses and in the temple is a way of saying, is it's really simple. And Marie said it so beautifully. It's symbolic. Where are we going? It's the way the angel wants us. I'm trying to get you home. This isn't some club that's reserved for a, an elect few who somehow learn some secret password or code or, or know somebody. No, everybody, come, follow me. We're, and we know where it ends up. So even though it seems so far away, there's something about these stories and these doctrines that bring it within reach enough to keep going, and that's really all we need. Yeah. Follow me through the difficulties and the hard things which have given you the ways that you can follow me to become as I am. So, yeah, come follow me. But where does that lead? It's a stirring vision. I remember the thing that... Uh, that probably caught my attention. I've told the story in some context, and then, then I'll be quiet and allow you to do some closing thoughts. But I discovered a little book when I was staying home from school one day. I think I may have really been sick. I don't remember. <laughs> but I found a book that we just inherited from my grandmother called Added Upon by Nephi Oh, Anderson. yes. I know that one. And, uh, you know, I don't know. I've tried to read it again, and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it doesn't, it didn't age well with me. But, but when I read it the first time, I had thought that church was just a series of boring meetings and not very interested in it. And then I read that, and for the first time, I think I caught a vision of the plan of salvation, that, that panorama from premortal existence on through. I thought that, and I still think, that is the most breathtaking thing that I had ever read or seen. Just astonishing to me. And I suddenly, I thought, oh, now this, if this is true, this is... This changes everything. It puts everything in this life in a different light. It all makes sense, and it's worth devoting oneself to. So, and the temple is a is a summary of that yeah. same path. Love that title. My mother read that book in old Mexico when she was growing up there in the colonies as a girl. So, yeah, the vision, and she always had that. I think it's one of those things. Maybe you try to have your children see is the vision of what they can achieve. Yeah. Well, uh, thank you very much. And, and now, I, if you have any parting thoughts, I will depart the stage. And uh, <laughs> Marie, do you have anything you'd like to say? No, I think we've probably said more than maybe they'd like to hear. I don't know. Oh, yeah. I can't see the unseen audience. Where are they? <laughs> <laughs> are you still there? Uh, but added upon, I think the temple adds upon. The book yeah. of Moses adds upon. It's a great, great thought. Yeah, I, I'm, we've concluded our kind of the, the organized, I hope it was organized part of our presentation. Uh, 
I suddenly remembered that I did used to talk to people who were being endowed. I would tell them about the Book of Moses. I really did. And I didn't know about this conference. I, I simply believed in it. It was, had been my own experience. I would say, as you go through this endowment, imagine, I don't know when it will happen to you. Maybe it won't be the first time. But as you keep coming back, the Lord will be whispering to you, thou art my son, daughter. What's that? It's the vision of who you are. That's what he gave Moses. And once Moses got that, then, of course, he was being sent a work for him to do. Yeah, go get, go get uh, Israel out of Egypt. Well, for a lot of us, <laughs> we don't have to do that. We, we maybe have to get uh, Egypt, out e of e Egypt out of Israel. Yeah. The vision and the work, it's, it's all in the temple. It's all in the book of Moses. And it's so simple. I, I love the power of the simplicity. The vision and the work. And it's in that book, and it's in the temple. And we can all understand it. It's so accessible and so needed. Well, thanks for the opportunity to be with oh, you. Thank you. Thank you.